This is week 36 in our series on Revelation. I'm going to say, if you've been here for most of them or all of them, when we're done with this, you're going to be an expert on this book, right? Um, The title this week is Wickedness is Stubborn. Whoops. (laughs) What was that? I didn't... All right. So do you ever get... um, Well, if you're like me... probably true, but do you ever get frustrated with how the world seems so stubbornly committed to wickedness and evil? Like, it's just like, really, guys? You know? Does it ever seem like the world in general just seems to, maybe not all of the world, but a lot of the world seems to take pleasure in this relentless rejection of God? And frankly, the gospel, the idea that man is helpless spiritually unless Jesus and the Holy Spirit intervene. That's not a message the world likes. And even if the world doesn't reject God altogether, atheism, they are relentlessly committed to trying to redefine who God is on their terms. Like, for example, oh, God is not a God of judge. Most of the world, and frankly, even some who call themselves Christians, want to cancel the idea of the wrath of God. How could a God of love judge people? Well, The question is, why does evil in this world seem like an uncontrollable weed? Some of you in Florida, you know, you have those kind of yards, right? If it weren't for weeds, you wouldn't have nothing. (laughs) Why does evil seem like this uncontrollable weed that keeps popping up everywhere and constantly needing to be rooted out? It's, It's exhausting. Well, there's a reason for this. The wicked in the world aren't wicked because they're sinners, right? Even the righteous, even those who follow Jesus, we are sinners, right? So there's a difference between being sinners and being wicked. The difference between the righteous and the wicked isn't sinlessness. It's this full, devoted, passionate commitment to evil. That's what wickedness is a relentless commitment to what is untrue. And that's what we see being dealt with in today's passage in Revelation chapter 16. We're going to deal with most of the chapter, verses 1 through 12. Now, this is, <clears throat> this is uh, commonly known as the seven bowls of God's wrath. Doesn't that sound fun? Just, if you're here visiting for the first time this Sunday, I'm sorry, but you know... This, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse here. So this is what was next. So let's, but we're going to unpack. There's actually some really encouraging, believe it or not, some encouraging things in here. This is chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel who's in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. This is a proclamation, a declaration that as bad as these judgments are, they're not undeserving judgments. And we'll get into that later. 
And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. And then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. That's Satan. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. And they are demonic spirits performing signs, going to the kings of the whole world, assembling them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then, interestingly enough, there is this parenthetical statement that doesn't really fit any of this. And I put it in bold and italics because I want you to see the way it's written in the original language. It's designed to be like a parenthetical, like, oh, by the way, just in case. <clears throat> Look what it says. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be, ex be seen exposed. Commercial break over. Back to the news. <laughs> and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is um, intense stuff. But it's only, I hear some noise. Is something going on? Anyway, but this is intense stuff, but I believe there's some significant things in here that can be encouraging for you, especially as children of God. And it's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to frighten someone to following Jesus. This isn't a hellfire and damnation sermon. You know, that's not my style. That's not kind of what I believe in. That's not what this sermon is designed for. That's not what this passage was written for. It was written for something completely different. So let's look at the history of this. I want to talk about belligerent Pharaoh. Just like last week, this is lifted. This, this symbolism is lifted directly from the story of Exodus. So John's readers, if you remember in chapter 15 and now chapter 16, John's readers are still seeing this passage through the lens of a very familiar story from the book of Exodus. Just in case you don't remember that story, that's where God told Pharaoh to let his people go and let them out of slavery. And Pharaoh says no. And God sends these plagues and Pharaoh still says no. Finally, Pharaoh says, yes, I'll do it. And then when he lets Israel go, he changes his mind and he gathers his army and he chases them to the Red Sea where Pharaoh's army is destroyed. These descriptions of these plagues connect symbolically with the Egyptian plagues. And if you're a Bible geek, if you go back and read Exodus chapter 7 through 9 and you see the description of these plagues, you're going to geek out. It's awesome stuff. Okay. Look at this verse in Exodus chapter 14. Look what Pharaoh does. This is after all the plagues. And he says, fine, I repent. I'll let Israel go. After all that, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. Talk about stubborn wickedness. They said, why have we let Israel go from serving us as slaves? So he made ready his chariot and his army. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Pharaoh pursued the people of Israel. The Egyptians pursued them. All of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and his army overtook them and camped at the sea. Some of you are already seeing some similarities between this and our passage, aren't you? So in that story, even as the plagues came upon Egypt, Pharaoh's irrational commitment to wickedness is manifested. He refuses to repent. He refuses to submit to God's authority. He refuses to let God's people out of slavery. 
Finally, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh agrees, okay, fine, I'll let Israel go. But then quickly he changes his mind. He is so committed to evil, he foolishly gathers his army together to pursue Israel. Bookmark this vision right here because it's critical. Another thing I want you to see history is this word Armageddon or Mount Megiddo. That's what the Hebrew word actually means. So the Valley of Megiddo, I want you to see this picture here. This is actually Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo is near Jerusalem. It's mentioned several times in the Old Testament, always described in the Old Testament, always as a flat plain. Here it's called a mount. Interesting, right? The cultural history of this valley made it a great symbol of the last ultimate battle that will take place between good and evil. Now, in Megiddo, many battles during Israel's history were fought there, and some were victorious for Israel, but some were not. King King Josiah died at Megiddo. Matter of fact, um, Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw God sitting on the throne high and lifted up. But why is it called Armageddon here and not Megiddo? Armageddon is a Hebrew word. Translated specifically, it means Mount Megiddo. Now, this is a critical clue to how you're supposed to interpret this passage because there is no such thing as Mount Megiddo. It's flat. This is a common Hebrew wordplay used throughout Hebrew literature to symbolize a significant event. It would be like us, when we study American history, calling this like, you know, know, the Battle of Gettysburg, calling it Mount Gettysburg. There's no mountain in Gettysburg, but it would be Mount Gettysburg. A a significant thing took place at Gettysburg. That's what the Hebrew language is doing here by changing Megiddo to Armageddon or Mount Megiddo. Another example of why we take this symbolically, there is significant internal proof within this passage alone that we're going to look at later. The symbolic use of the frogs in verse 13 coming out of the dragon's mouth. You guys remember what we learned what? Whenever we see something coming out of a mouth, it's symbolizing deceit and lies, not actually frogs. That would be pretty significant, wouldn't it? Frogs. I mean, so John's readers would understand that this reference to Mount Megiddo or Armageddon wasn't necessarily about a specific place, but more importantly, about a very significant event that was going to happen. They wouldn't read it with this narrow view of just one small geographic location but they would have a broader view of this final battle with evil. So that's the history that's important for us to understand this passage, looking at it through the lens of Exodus and understanding what the valley, not mountain, what the valley of Megiddo actually was. So that's the history. Look at the spiritual section. What about God? What is he doing and why and how does he do it? I want to talk about these symbols of wrath. First of all, these plagues and judgment. I'm going to go through these for you real quick and and try to explain them a little bit to you. The first plagues bring these painful sores, and these painful sores reveal the frailty of human flesh, that it is susceptible to any and all sickness and disease. The second and third plagues poison the sea, cutting off a major food source, polluting the fresh water sources. These plagues, these first three plagues, strike at the core supply of food and fresh water. Yet the wicked still refuse to repent. Then we see three more plagues after this. The fourth one is a heat wave that scorches everyone, let alone what it does to the crops. See what's happening here? Livestock would be scorched as well. 
Another strike against what mankind needs to survive and thrive on the earth. The fifth angel darkens the sun. Now they're suffering from the sores and from the plague of the scorching heat and plague four, and yet they still refuse to repent. And then the sixth angel brings the sixth plague. It is a drought so bad that it dries up the Euphrates River, and it says it removes the barrier that keeps the kings from the east from approaching. It removes that natural barrier. And we have learned about this before. Some of you might remember we talked about how the River Euphrates was seen as the barrier between other empires that would come to invade Israel. All these bowls make the earth a place where comfort, safety, and provision are all taken away. Everything that those who inhabit the earth may love or find security in or have pledged allegiance to in this world are now gone. And the symbolism is intriguing, right? But that's not the most important thing to learn in this passage. So I'm not saying to skip over the plagues and the bowls. Of course we see them, but that's not what the passage is really about. The symbolism is intriguing, but the two most important things we learn are this. What it is that evil deserves and how evil responds. That's actually the message of the passage. First of all, what is it that evil deserves? Their lack of desire to even hear or understand the gospel and the call to repentance is actually also a part of their judgment. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. Look what Paul says. This is incredible. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without Excuse. What did the angel declare? They deserve this. They're without excuse. These stages of judgment are part of the fulfillment of this passage in Romans. They remove any doubt who they are. And remember again, I'm going to clarify, there's a difference between being a sinner and being fully committed to wickedness. That should be comforting for you, right? Amen? Good. Okay. The wicked have had everything they love at this point taken away from them except one thing. One thing is left that they love, and that is Babylon, the world system. And that is destroyed by the seventh bowl that we have saved for next week. So you're going to want to come back for that, okay? (laughs) Yeah, great. (laughs) You're a little too excited about this, guys, okay? But sadly, catch this. This is important. Just as the plagues did not convince Pharaoh to repent... These six bowls won't convince the wicked to repent either. Do you see the parallel? Even if they wanted to repent, there's no more room for repentance. And because of that, this is an appropriate, well-deserved final judgment. That is why the angel and all of heaven declare in verses 5 through 8 that the wicked deserve this. They have been exposed for who they are and what they really want, and God is right and bringing this judgment. So that's what evil deserves. I want you to see also how evil responds. So Armageddon that we're going to look at next week becomes, remember I've told you that Revelation is set up to be different camera angles on the same vision. It's kind of like when you watch a replay in a football game from different, that's what Revelation is. It's seven different camera angles looking at different things. Armageddon will be another camera angle on that second harvest we learned a few weeks ago. 
Remember the wine press of God's wrath? All of that? All the unredeemed at this point are still under the spell of the second beast, represented by those frogs that come out of the dragon's mouth. And because of this deception, the dragon and his beasts are able to muster together all of evil for one last stand against God. Remember, we learned whenever we see something coming out of the mouth of the dragon or his beasts, it is a symbol of deception. These aren't just people and demons who struggle with sin. These are people that are angry, passionately committed to evil and destroying God and all he has created and his righteousness. It is, in fact, what Jesus was describing at the end of his parable on the wheat and the weeds. You know, the gathering. Look at this. Look what he says. Gather the weeds first. Bind them in the bundles to be burned. That's Armageddon. Just like Pharaoh. Just like Pharaoh, the wicked refused to turn to God and become even more angry and more irrational and more committed to wickedness. And just like Pharaoh gathered his army to pursue Israel, the dragon and his beast gather the wicked for their final suicide mission. And Armageddon symbolizes Satan gathering all of evil's power from every corner of the earth for the seventh bowl that we will look at in detail next week. Every king, every weapon, every effort, every philosophy, every idea, every resentment toward God gathered in one place for the ultimate showdown against Jesus and the Father. You know what the six bowls have done? They have flushed out into the open, into a plain, all who are fully committed to wickedness. And you know what the scripture says in this passage? They have no place left to hide. Matter of fact, the passage we read said there are no more mountains to retreat to. That's what mountains were used for, to retreat. There are no more islands to be in seclusion on. Wickedness has nowhere to run now and nowhere to hide as they gather together in their anger and resentment. The hatred of the gospel and their foolish commitment to evil has set themselves up as sitting ducks for final judgment. <sighs> What about us? This is the personal section. What are we supposed to do with this, Pastor Joe? I'm going to see how you pull this one out of your hat. <laughs> you know what this really is? It's a reminder of grace. This was the sermon preview this week. God's judgment exposes the absurdity of the wicked. It also inspires joy and gratitude in the redeemed. So don't make the mistake that some might make. Don't read the seven bowls of judgment as like a future evening news report of the description of the events of Judgment Day. It is a symbolic description. That's why we see Mount Megiddo and the frogs. Clearly, it's symbolism. These symbolic plagues, they're not coded clues revealing secrets about what to look for, what will happen on that day. The purpose of those plagues, as they're described, is to connect this story to what happened with Pharaoh. To learn the lesson that Pharaoh learned, it also exposes the wicked insanity of the unredeemed. Do you see how Pharaoh is a picture of those on the last day? It's hard for us, really, in this world right now, it's really hard for us to fully understand the level of evil's corruption. 
at every level, evil has infiltrated this world. Frankly, sadly, even in the church. Judgment reveals the difference between sinfulness and wickedness. Every human is sinful, but not all are wicked. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, and I inserted this, the God of this world is the dragon, right? We've learned about that in Revelation. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, un, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the frogs. Just like Pharaoh, the wicked are hopelessly hardened against the gospel, against God, and ultimately against us, the redeemed. But question, does God really need six bowls? <laughs> Can't he just get it all done in one, one big bowl? Does it have to be so thorough? Is it really necessary? Does he enjoy it? Is he sadistic? The answer is no. God does not take joy in destroying the wicked. But their irrational wickedness will not ever change. It must be eradicated. Each bowl exposes the depth of their disdain that the wicked have for the gospel and for the creator and the judge. It seems like total insanity, really, though, doesn't it? Responding to God's power and judgment in this way. Oh, yeah, you're powerful, but I'm still not going to repent. This stubborn, unwavering commitment to wickedness has no place in the presence of God. It has no place in the new creation. And they have no excuse. The severity of this judgment also reveals, now think about this, this is also what the severity and, and the lengths that God has to go through, it also reveals the folly of us Christians thinking we have the job or that we have the ability to fix wickedness in this world through politics or activism or whatever. I mean, right? I mean, if we could really do it, then there'd be no need for these bowls. The good news is we are not relentlessly committed to wickedness. Even though we can't change the world, we are, just, just as they are committed to wickedness, we are committed to the gospel. We are committed to the kingdom values our precious Jesus taught us. And as the redeemed, we are committed. Do you guys remember the qualities of the priesthood? Proclamation, integrity, and industry, we are relentlessly committed to living like that. People who proclaim, live with integrity, and work hard. That is who we are. And while we know we can't fix the world, it's not an excuse to sit back and say, oh, well, might as well not try. That's not the case. So I'm not telling you you can't, you can't do anything. What I'm telling you is you have to understand why judgment is necessary. We must recognize that living in this way of proclamation and integrity and industry, that is in direct opposition to the stubborn wicked. They hate, listen to me, they hate what we are committed to. They might like in some ways when it benefits them, but they want to redefine or reject all the other things. They don't understand it. They resent it. And they will until Jesus returns. So until then, we're always going to be Swimming upstream. That's why John called it the tribulation that we are partners in. Think about it. If judgment couldn't convince Pharaoh or won't convince the wicked on that day, 
do you think it's possible that we should probably moderate our expectations of what we can do? (laughs) What do you think? Well, I know, God, you couldn't convince Pharaoh and the wicked, but we can do it. We're very persuasive, God. You know what this does? This, the, the severity of the judgment and the depth that it goes to, this should do this for us as children of God, as followers of Jesus who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. This encourages us to let go of our deep frustration with the world's stubborn wickedness. So Christian, yo, please relax. This doesn't mean that we abandon our hope to change the world. What it does mean is we are rescheduling our hope, if that makes sense, for the day Jesus returns. Does that make sense? Okay, listen, there's another part of this passage that I haven't explained yet. I made reference to it and I put it in bold earlier. Yet for us, it reveals what the purpose of this was. And it is frankly the most precious, blessed part of this passage on the seven bowls. I'm going to put the verse up again. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed, there it is again. Remember Revelation chapter one, blessed are those who read this. Remember that? Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Who is John talking to here? He's not talking to the stubborn wicked. He's talking to us. He's talking to you. Now look, the wicked might read that and either say, what is that? Okay, whatever. Shrug their shoulders. Maybe they look at it in bewilderment. But as a follower of Jesus, even as I just read it, I'm not saying that it's super emotional. Maybe for some of you it is. But even as a follower of Jesus, I just read it for you. You understood it, didn't you? You understood it because you have not had your heart hardened. When you read it, it pricks something in your mind immediately. Oh, that's right. These bowls aren't for me. Question, when we read it earlier, didn't it seem kind of out of place? But we understand what it means, right? Even though it's out of place, we understand what it means. But why there? (laughs) Why did the Spirit of God give John this sentence hidden parenthetically in a passage about judgment of the wicked? Because for followers of Jesus, these stages of escalating judgment are meant for us to be a reminder of the grace that we have tasted. Because of Jesus, we escape what the wicked deserve because he gave us ears to hear this hidden reminder in verse 15. Because of his love for us, the gospel is not only revealed, it is implanted in our hearts and minds. We've learned about that in some of our other studies of other books. The seed of God is implanted within us. Because of Jesus, because of that, this is the good news. It didn't take you six bowls of judgment to convince you to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Because of how the Holy Spirit marked you for redemption, you follow Jesus without even one bowl having to be poured. Amen? Isn't that great? We aren't smarter. So don't get arrogant and cocky, Christian. We aren't smarter. We aren't better. We're not more in tune with God because of our own free will. We are sinners just like they are. Yet despite our foolish sinfulness, God has convinced you to abandon ridiculous, silly commitment to wickedness. 
We are no longer committed to it, even though we might struggle with it. We have been made recipients of grace and mercy that we ourselves would have never wanted to embrace on our own. And the bowls remind you that by grace, you have been spared the burden of stubborn, foolish commitment to wickedness in this world. Because you have been set free, Christian, from that insane commitment to wickedness. And because of that, while they're declared as deserving the judgment, what is the same thing said about us? We don't deserve it. Even though we kind of (laughs) do. That's how God's judgment of the wicked inspires even more worship from the redeemed. That we have been given ears to hear the hidden truth. So instead of being frustrated, frustrated with the world's relentless commitment to evil, we now can be filled with gratitude. Gratitude for, even as sinners, the miraculous gift of our desire to not be fully committed to wickedness, but to be fully committed to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Dear Jesus, thank you that before we were even born, you set the Holy Spirit out to mark us for redemption. And even though we struggle with sin, you've rescued us from the trap of being fully committed to wickedness. And that's why, Lord, we know we, we feel guilty some, well, most of the time <laughs> when we sin. We wonder, why do I do this? Lord, help us be encouraged by the fact that we see that. It's a sign that we are not fully committed to wickedness. And because of that, we don't have to worry about the bowls of wrath. But Lord, thank you that in that passage, there's this hidden verse, this hidden encouragement that we as followers of Jesus read. And because of the spirit of God, we know exactly what it means and it comforts our heart, it comforts our mind, it comforts our soul, and it fills us with gratitude for this miraculous gift that you've given us to be fully committed to the Lamb and to follow him wherever he goes. So today, Lord, keep us committed to proclamation and integrity and industry. Let go of the burden of thinking we have to change the world All we have to do is be a part of the mechanism that you are using to call others out of darkness into light. We ask for this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Amen. Church, we love you. Have a great week. See you next week.